Genesis chapter 3, so I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles in the seats underneath in front of you. And as you turn there, um, it shouldn't take you too long, but as you turn there, I wonder if you've ever come across a, uh, a scenario where when you came across it, you thought to yourself at first, well, that's not supposed to look like that. That's not supposed to be that way. Um, I want to show you some of these you, you might have seen uh, come across on the internet. Let me give you an idea. Here's the first picture. Uh, can, you, can you tell what's going on there? there? There's a car in the roof of a house. Is that normal? No, that is, that's not normal. We know that's not supposed to be that way. Now, after you see something like that, what's your next question? How did that happen? How, how did it get there, right? If you tease it out, you can actually discover what the, what the problem was, which you can't see in the picture, is that there was actually a road uh, up off to the side, and the car drove off that road amazingly and flew and landed in the roof of the house. Then there's this picture. Um, this isn't normal. Um, maybe for a cat on a ledge, you're not supposed to see a dog on, on the ledge. Uh, that's not normal, um, but you can tell how that actually happened because the window's open, right? And for some reason, the dog thought to go outside the window and then, then got stuck. And then one more picture of, uh, of a vehicle. Now, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I just know that exists. So that's a tractor trailer that somehow got in an accident and forced it up onto one of those signs over the overpass. You see something like that, you see a picture like that, and you say, that's not the way that's supposed to be. But how did it ultimately get there? I show those pictures because we live in a world that's not supposed to be the way that it is. Our world is not supposed to be the way that it is. You and I know that, actually, kind of innately, intuitively. We see brokenness, we see suffering, we see sadness, we see hurt, and we think, that's not right. That's, that's what we say. When we see somebody harming another person, we think, that's not right. This, this isn't supposed to be this way. And, and what we've been looking at in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 are, are God's answers to life's most important questions. And one of those big questions is, why is our world the way that it is? Why is there brokenness? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? And so we started to tease out the answer to that last week as we came to Genesis chapter 3. Because if Genesis 3 tells us anything, it tells us the answer to this question. Why is our world the way it is? How did it get in the... Well, how did it get to the place that we see it in, in today? And so we talked about two things last week. We, we talked about, in general, that, that the reason why our world is the way that it is is due to this three-letter word called sin. Sin. Sin, which is ultimately the rejection of God and his, and his ways. Because God created the world perfect. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 say. God created the world good. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 say. Our, our world was not... To, to have the elements in it that we see today. But what Genesis 3 says is that our first father and mother, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they looked out. They looked out at all that God had provided. And instead of focusing on God's provision, they focused on his prohibition. Instead of looking at that all that God had given them, it provided everything that they needed, they focused on this one thing which God said, you know that tree in the midst of the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that tree you shall not eat. Because in the day that you eat it, you will, you will die. And so God told them that. And yet a serpent came into the garden. And, and listen, I'm not going to get into it. Talked about it last week. I believe that serpent was just a regular snake possessed, influenced by Satan, 
who got Adam and Eve to ultimately question. Do you remember what two things I said he got Adam and Eve to question? The first was the truthfulness of God and the goodness of God. And, and why, did, why did humanity, Adam and Eve, ultimately reject God and his ways? It's because they were tempted to question God's truthfulness. Can I really believe God? Can I really trust him at his word? And then ultimately, because they got focused on what God told them they couldn't have, the question is goodness. God, you're keeping something from us. So the reason why our world is the way that it is is because ultimately humanity believed the lie, believed God was holding back, that God was not good, that he was not truthful. And so verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3 says that they took of the fruit and they ate. And so last week we talked about the path to sin. We talked about this path that Adam and Eve took to sin. And then we talked about the fact that the act of sin, that they took of the fruit and they ate. They did exactly what God told them not to do. But before we get into the last two parts of this section in Genesis, before we look at the last two things that Genesis teaches us, I just want to quickly comment on what I want to talk about, and that is the appeal of sin. Did you know that sin is appealing? Now, I defined sin last week as a rejection of God and his, his ways, a rejection of God's personhood and a rejection of his word. But I want us to be aware of something. Sin is appealing. Now, nobody ever wakes up one day and says to themselves, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to reject God, and I'm going to reject his ways. Typically, that's not how it works. Typically, what happens is what we see happen in Genesis 6. Can you look at this verse with me? Look at Genesis 6 for a moment. Verse 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise. Stop there. Did you see? Satan had gotten Eve to begin to question God's truthfulness and his goodness. And so when she started to look at this fruit, it had an appeal to her. It had a physical appeal. It had an emotional appeal. It had a spiritual appeal. And I just want us to be aware, friends, that, that often rejecting God and his ways, it doesn't look bad to us. In the moment, it seems really good. Sin is actually fun. Now, now bear with me when I say that in the moment. That often, the, the, the initial gratification that sin gives us in the moment, listen, Eve says, oh wow, it seems like if I do this scene, I'm going to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually satisfied. And when you remove the truth of God's word and the goodness of God from the equation, that's often how sin looks to us it looks like it's going to be satisfying in a way that God in that moment might not be. But ultimately what we're doing when we're giving into sin and to its appeal is we're rejecting God and his ways. And so now what we're going to see is why, well, why sin might be appealing in the moment, it is ultimately something to be avoided at all costs. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 24, we're going to see the result of sin. We're going to see the result of sin. We've talked about the path to sin. We've talked about the act of sin. Now we're going to look at the result of sin. And I'm here to tell you, when you read Genesis chapter 3, you and I should walk away from the saying, no matter how appealing sin might seem in the moment, how, how, how tantalizing it might be, ultimately when you reject God and his ways, when you acknowledge that, well, it leads you to places that you never intended to go. So let's pick it up in verse 7, all right? Here we go. Let us learn, let us grow as we hear from God's word. Then the eyes of both were opened, it says. They've taken of the fruit and they ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree with which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust and the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word, amen? It's God's word, but it is not necessarily at first blush an encouraging word. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 24 are actually quite devastating because they explain why we find ourselves in the place that we find ourselves. There are a number of things that we see are now a result an outcome of rejection of God and his ways. The sin of Adam has invited in and brought into the world many things. And, and it's first displayed for us in verse 7. Look at that verse again. It says, and we touched on this last week, then, then their eyes were opened. Then the eyes of both were opened. In, in a moment, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve's actions brought them into an awareness of some things that they had never been aware of before family, were they now made aware of good things or bad things? The serpent had told them, they said, hey, eat this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. They saw that as something which would benefit them. We see that ultimately what they become aware of is a curse. So what is it that they're awakened to? What is it that their eyes see? The very first two things I want to draw our, our attention to, the result of sin is this, shame and guilt. Shame and guilt. Humanity had no concept of these two things, shame and guilt. But in the moment of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they ate of the fruit, their eyes were open. And now they knew shame and guilt. We see this first in verse 7. This is the first example of shame that ever exists. That the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were what? 
naked. They're naked. Here's their first awareness. They look at themselves and they see that they're naked. We're going to talk about why that represents shame. And then in verse 8, they experience and they know guilt. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what did they do? Did they greet him with open arms? What? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And why did they hide themselves? Adam goes on to say, because I was afraid. That's the first time that we see guilt in this perfect world that God created. God created a world where shame and guilt was not something that was ever experienced by humanity until the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. Now, I want to take a moment and I want us to talk about shame and guilt. I feel like an understanding of shame and guilt is, is hugely and immensely beneficial for the Christian. Because when we identify it as part of the result, part of the problem that comes from, from sin, ultimately, as we'll see at the end of the message, then it can adequately be and rightly be addressed. Because shame and guilt are not the same thing. Did you know that? that they're, they're tied together, but they're different. I want to give you an understanding of these two things that you and I experience very often in our lives. First, shame is the knowledge and awareness that there is something wrong with you. What is shame? It's the knowledge, it's the awareness that there is something wrong with you. Now, this is different from guilt because guilt is the knowledge and awareness that you have done wrong. Are you tracking with me? Shame is the knowledge and awareness that there's something wrong with you. Guilt is the knowledge and awareness that you've done wrong. You see, when you look into the Bible, when you read the Bible carefully, one of the things that you discover is that the opposite of shame is righteousness. And the opposite of guilt is innocence. So guilt has to do with wrongdoing. Shame has to do with being wrong in and of yourself and knowing that. In guilt, you... You understand, I've broken a rule. I've done something that I should not have done. In shame, you say, I feel bad. I I feel bad about who I am. I feel bad about what I am. Guilt comes and says, here are the rules, and I broke them. Shame comes and says, I know what I should be, and I'm not that. I'm not that. In fact, when you come to, to illustrate this, think about when somebody lies. When, when somebody lies, they come and they feel guilt because they know they should not have done that. They should have told the truth. They, they broke a, a commandment. They, they broke a social contract. And they said, this is what I should have done and I did not do it. I, I'm, I'm guilty. But shame comes into the person that lies because... You feel the shame after you've broken the rule because you say, I was a, I was a coward. I, I lied because I was trying to protect, protect myself. In, in shame, you have a vision of what you should be. And, and with shame, what comes and happens is you say, I didn't measure up to that. Shame and guilt, they're, they're felt by us in tremendous ways. And that's why in verse 7, when Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and they cover themselves... That's why we say there is the first example of shame. Because for the first time ever, they look and they realize there's something wrong with me. And they try and cover it up. 
when God created them, it says that he placed them in the garden in Genesis 2. It says, and they were naked and what? Unashamed. See, they've been naked the whole time, but it wasn't until they rejected God and rejected his ways that then they realized, I am not what I should be. I am not what I should be until they try and cover it. Isn't that what we try and do with shame in our lives? We know that there's something not right with, with us. And we feel that. We feel like at times we don't measure up to, to what we believe we should be. We live in a world that is becoming, well, I'll say this, in the Western world, it's becoming less and less religious. Less people are going to church, less people are identifying with specific religions. And one of the remarkable things that therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists are discovering is that although less and less people are going to church or identifying with religion, what they're discovering is, is that people are still feeling tremendous amounts of shame. Because we've been lowering the standard of things that you should and should not do. We've been making more and more things even legal or saying you shouldn't feel bad about not doing that. We're kind of trying to remove guilt, but you can't remove shame because deep down everybody knows that they don't measure up. And so often what therapists will do is they'll say, you just need to be your best self. You need to strive to be who you believe you should be. Do you know what's so insidious about that? You can't do it. Because every single one of us, myself included, has an image of what we should be. And the more and more you and I strive to try and be that thing, the more and more we discover what we're not. So shame and guilt, it, it goes all the way back to the garden because we were created to be this way, followers of God, image bearers of him, to live in a rightness, in a righteousness, and we don't do it. So we experience shame. But then we also experience what? Guilt. And that's what comes out in verse 8, right? They, they fear God. They fear God. They fear his presence. They hide from him because they know that they've done wrong. It's not just that they are wrong. It's just not that they're, that they're no longer able to be transparent. Their, their nakedness is an indication to them that there's something wrong with themselves. But when they hear the sound of God in the garden, they hide because they know that God said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Surely die. And so they know that they should receive a judgment. Why do they know that they should receive a judgment? Because they know that they violate God's word. They're guilty. Their actions have betrayed them. They are now under the righteous and right judgment of God. And so they're afraid. And so they try to hide. They're naked and they're afraid. These are signs to us of their shame. These are signs to us of their guilt. And what great parents we have in Adam and Eve because they passed it down to all of us. There's not one person here that hasn't experienced it. To just alleviate just the heaviness of this for, for a moment, a little girl was told by her father about the fall of Adam and Eve and all that was brought into the world. Was told about death and about sickness as also being a result of sin. And the little girl, a week after the conversation with her dad, found herself sick with the flu. And, and so she spoke to her dad in her sickness and she said, Dad, if only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit, I wouldn't be sick. And her dad thought, yeah, that's true. But before he could answer her, she added, of course, if they didn't eat it, we'd be sitting here naked. <laughs> the girl understood sickness as part of the fall. She got the idea of nakedness, but it wasn't just about physical nakedness. It's about shame and guilt. 
but shame and guilt now exist. And so what do we do with shame? What do we do with guilt? I tell you, we try and do a lot of things with it. We try and mask it. We try and cover it. We, we, we try and fix the brokenness in our own, but we can't. But we can't. It's this truly, truly horrible predicament that we find ourselves in. But then guess what? Things get even worse because of sin. It's not just shame and guilt. On an individual level, we feel that. But then there's a bunch of other things that come out to us because of this. In verses 12 through 13, we discover that now conflict, conflict is a part of our world. Conflict in relationships, first and foremost. Look at, look at what happens. The moment after God calls them out of hiding and he says, who told you that you were naked? Verse 12, what does he say? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What does Adam do? What's he doing right there? He's blame shifting. How do you think Eve felt in that moment? Do you think their relationship was in harmony? <laughs> Did you think she felt good about herself? And do you think she felt good about her husband? No way. But in reality, who is Adam ultimately blame shifting to with that statement? Who would like to guess who he's really blaming? Yeah. He's blaming God. The woman you gave me. There's now conflict in all sorts of relationships. In fact, it goes on to say there in verse 16, we see this, that now the man and the woman, it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. God says, listen, your sin has now brought, instead of harmony and peace, conflict between you and your husband. You're going to try and usurp his role. He's going to try and abuse you in his role. And so this is where I wrote this this week. I said, listen, your life in my life was not designed to experience personal conflicts with other people. You were not made to hate. You were not made to be bitter. You were not made to be ashamed. You were not made to be guilty. You were not made to be passive aggressive. All of these things, the conflicts in our relationship, they come as a result of rejecting God in his ways. And I want to sit on a statement that a biblical scholar made that I think is important. It's going to take a moment. Your brains are going to have to adjust. Just listen to it. I'll tease it out. Biblical scholar Henry Blocker said, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. Tracking with me thus far? In the Bible, death is the reverse of life. That's not hard to get our minds wrapped around, but listen. Death is the reverse of life. Death is not the reverse of existence. Are you hearing me? Death is the reverse of life. Death is not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means to be cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence, but it is existence nevertheless. When God said, the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He did not mean that they would cease to exist. You following me now? He said, you will experience death, which is the reverse of life. You and I in our relationships, where we experience conflict, where we experience hurt, where people are harsh towards us and we're harsh towards other people, that's not life. Every time that you have those kinds of experiences, you are living in the death that was invited through sin. 
I said it last week and it bears repeating. We have no concept of the type of life that we were truly created to experience. We only can see through a mirror dimly the, the, the majesty and the glory of what it's like to live in relationship with other people where there is not conflict. Where we don't experience shame and guilt. Because the Bible comes and says, listen, yes, you continue to exist. Existence isn't the opposite of, of death. The opposite of death is life. And now we do not get to experience the fullness of it because of sin. But it's not just, listen, it's not just conflict in relationship. There's now conflict in nature. There's conflict between us and the, and the animal kingdom and the, and the world. Look at verses 14 through 15. God places a curse upon the serpent and so now what we have is there's a conflict, not just in relationships with other people and relationships with God, but now within nature, there's conflict. And don't, don't miss out on this. The, the reality is in one moment, a dog can be a man's best friend one moment. In the next moment, it can bite. It can cause damage. It can, it can end life. From the time of Adam and Eve till now, we see humanity in conflict with nature. Rather, there being harmony between us and the animal world, if you will. Now, there's, there's death that exists. There's conflict that exists. Our ability to fill the earth and subdue it, it is now made all the more difficult. And notice in verse 14, it says that God comes to the serpent and he pronounces a curse on the serpent. And he says, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the animals in the field. And some people read this and they miss out on something. God curses the snake but according to those verses, is the snake the only part of the animal kingdom that's been cursed? No, he comes and he says, you are cursed above. All of the creation is now cursed. The snake is cursed in a unique way. I know some of you like snakes, but, but now, now most people don't. <laughs> and in fact, the very natural way in which a snake moves, remember how he says you're going to be on your belly the rest of your life? People ask me, they're like, did snakes like used to walk or hover or like, how did that work? Because now he says they're going to be on their bellies. No, no, snakes were always on their bellies, but now the snake will forever, and the way that the snake moves will forever be associated with that which is lowly, with, with that is which is in servitude. For, for forever now, the serpent is identified as the part of God's creation which helped to lead humanity astray. Conflict in relationships, conflict in natures, conflict in work. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about this previously. God tells Adam, listen, work's going to be hard now. Thorns and thistles, weeds are going to grow. You're going to have problems in trying to, to fill the earth and subdue it and use it for your benefit. It's not going to be easy. Work isn't part of the curse. The toil and struggle and work is. But then the worst result of all, the most catastrophic thing, is separation from God. We see Adam and Eve experiencing a separation from God. We see Adam and Eve in this text experiencing something that they had never known before. See, Adam and Eve are unique in comparison to you and I. This text alludes to the fact that Adam and Eve had a relationship with God that humanity hasn't had since. God communicated directly with Adam and Eve. He spoke with, with Adam he was able to be with Adam and in his presence. Did you see that little verse where it talks about God walking 
in, in the garden in the cool of the day. There's this, there's this allusion to the fact that God's presence was uniquely amongst the creation at that time and place. And that, that he engaged Adam and Eve in such a way that they weren't afraid to be around him. That they didn't, they didn't fall back in fear or trembling until they sinned. And now for the very first time, God comes and he brings judgment against them. And part of that judgment involves the fact that they can no longer be in his presence and communicate with him like they once did. Look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden. By the way, he didn't just send Adam out, he sent Eve out as well. He sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of garden, what did he do? He puts an angel in a flaming sword. These symbols that Adam and Eve no longer had the relationship with their creator that they once did. These are devastating verses. And as I said last week, Adam lived at least, from what we can tell, 900 years after the events of Genesis 3. 900 years forever knowing what he had and what he had lost. The closest that I can get illustratively to this is, have you ever had the flu where you're so sick you can't get out of bed? How even to raise your head off your pillow gives you a headache. And you're laying there and you see people walking around and maybe your spouse comes in with their face covered over their mouth and they don't want to get it. And, you, and you're laying there, and one of the things about being so sick like that is that you realize what you're not able to do. You don't want to eat food. You don't want to get up and walk. All those things that you would enjoy doing, you can't do. My friends, Adam and Eve had that a hundred times worse because they knew what life was really like, and now they knew the result of what they had done. So I showed you those pictures in the beginning. Those pictures of things that you looked at and you said, that's not supposed to be that way. Genesis chapter 3 is God's answer to say, yeah, this is exactly why you find these things in your life that you do. You want to know why you have shame and guilt? It's not just because of religion. In fact, there's a comedian who one time said this. He says, all religions are the same. They're just guilt with different holidays. To that I say, we're about to see that that's not the case. Christianity is unlike any other religion in the world because if you think that guilt is just because of some set of rules and standards that, that man made up, that that shame is something that ultimately doesn't come from, from within because of who we actually are in light of God, then, then you don't understand that, that the solution to your problem can actually be found. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we're not just told why things are the way they are. They're told how things can ultimately change. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we find God's response to sin. My friends, this is the most glorious part of this entire text. And I think sometimes we as Christians miss it. We miss how God responds to sin. See, what we do is we often focus on Genesis chapter 3, and we see the judgment and the justice of God. The result of sin is that it invites God's judgment in upon us. And he's right and he's good to judge, to keep himself separated from Adam and Eve. But this chapter isn't just a chapter about God's judgment and the result of our sin. This is a chapter that shows us God's grace. You want to know how God responded to the first sin of Adam and Eve? He responded with grace. And you know what grace is? Most simply said, grace is unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. Now, some people don't even quite know what to do with that. 
Simply grace is receiving good that you did not earn or deserve. This is what grace is. And Genesis 3 is filled, filled with examples of God's grace. God's grace and God's mercy are all throughout the pages of this Bible. But just like shame and guilt aren't the same thing, God's grace and God's mercy, they're different as well. See, mercy from God looks something like this. We are spared punishment that we do deserve. That's what mercy is. Being spared punishment that you do deserve. God's grace is receiving favor that we do not deserve. Getting above and beyond what you should not have received. And God shows Adam and Eve grace. He definitely shows them mercy, but he shows them grace. They receive a favor from God that they do not deserve. We see this in three ways. Number one, we see it in how God drew them out of hiding rather than driving them from it. He drew them out of hiding rather than driving them from it. Did you notice that in the text? They sin, and then God asks a question. Where are you? Where are you? Do you see the grace of that? The grace of that is the fact that God knew exactly where they were. God wasn't up in heaven, then he came down and said, now where did Adam and Eve go? Like with your kids. Oh man, we have one of them. We're often, where is she? Like she's so quiet, right? And you got to hunt her down and you find her. God knew exactly where they were. And God could have come and said, Adam and Eve, get out here, stand before me and face what I'm about to give to you. Instead, he invites them out. Where are you? Look, maybe you're a better person than me. When somebody has sinned against me, my first response typically isn't a response that's filled with that kind of grace. My response typically is, do you know what you did? Do do, do you know the impact that this is having? God draws them out rather than drive them out. In fact, he even says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God wasn't like, what happened? Tell me, I don't know. We can read, God's not playing dumb here. He's showing a grace to his creation. Now, don't get me wrong. He's going to bring a judgment, and they are judged for it. But he knows that. Instead, he is showing his justice mixed with grace to bring them along to help them to see what they have done. He draws them from hiding rather than driving them from it. And then the next words that he speaks to them are words of promise. Even amidst the the curses that he levels and the judgment that he levels, when he finally begins to address the entire group that's there, including the serpent, look at verse 15. He comes and he speaks these words. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the one that I'm going to provide, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you know what's happening in that verse? God is offering up a promise that one day he is going to strike a death blow against the source of this problem in the first place. The serpent will strike the heel. He will bruise the one that God will send to ultimately make right what humanity made wrong. But the end result will be that the one that God sends will crush the head of the serpent. 
God has to do what he must do towards sin. He must judge it. He must condemn it. But at the same point, he comes and he speaks a promised redemption to Adam and Eve. Anybody want to take a guess at the one whom God would send that will ultimately crush the head of that serpent? Anybody? Anybody? What's the Bible answer here? Jesus! That's the one that he sends. This is the promise of Jesus. The moment sin enters the world, so too does God's promised redemption, showing his grace to those who will receive judgment, but ultimately that judgment will be poured out on Jesus. Listen, the comedian said, all religions are the same. They're just guilt with different holidays. That's not true. Because Christianity says, yeah, no, there's guilt, there's wrongdoing, there's sinners. But the God of the Bible, the God we worship and serve, is a God who from the beginning shows his grace. And he does it in one final way. I want us to take this in. The very last way that we see God's grace on display in this chapter is that God provided for them. He not only came in and drew them out, he not only came and promised them a redemption to make right what they messed up so royally, and not just them, but all of us, he also comes and he provides for them right away. He does it in two ways. First, he covered their nakedness. He covered their nakedness. They put together fig leaves to act as loincloths, these things that would, would perish. I couldn't even imagine what that looked like or how they even did it. God sees their nakedness. He sees that they know that, they're, that they should be covered, and he covers them. He sacrifices animals for them to make garments for them, verse 21 says, to clothe them. What kind of a God does this? A God who is intent to rescue and to save. He promises that he will deal with their problem one day, once and for all, but in the immediate, he clothes them. He covers their nakedness, but you know what else he did? He kept them from living forever. That's one of the unique things, is he casts them out of the garden and he doesn't let them eat of the tree of life because he says, I don't want them living forever. That's a mercy, that's a grace to keep them from eating of that fruit which would allow Adam and Eve to live with the guilt and the shame and the results of their sin forever. Instead, he covers them and instead he protects them from going back to this tree. Now, there's no doubt they live longer than any of us will ever live, but ultimately... They would die that physical death, but they would die it with a promised hope that one day their God would make everything right. And they would have to wait. And humanity would have to wait. They'd have to wait until the coming of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament these words, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He would write to Titus and he would say, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Listen, God not only has provided for Adam and Eve, he not only offered them a promised salvation, he not only drew them out rather than drive them out, he does the same for us. I told you that grace was unmerited favor. But somebody else defined grace this way. I remember hearing this a long time ago and I like it. Grace can also be defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. Have you ever heard that? 
God's riches at Christ's expense. God doing for us what we could not do, giving us what we do not deserve. God provided for Adam and Eve in their sin. Do you know that he's done the same for you? Do you know that he's made a way for us to deal with our shame and our guilt? Do you know that he's made a way for us to know a new life where although there's still brokenness in our world and in conflict, that we can live differently than, than we could have previously? The answer to that, the solution for that, is found in Christ, in Christ alone. John would say, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his one and only son to what? To die for us. If you know that today, if you know Christ as Savior, then you're living in the promise and the hope of Genesis 3. Today, the choice is there for each of us. Are we going to live in the results of our sin, or are we going to live in God's response to our sin? My prayer for you and for me is that we would live in response to God's sin because he has overcome the result of our sin.